Imagine the motions of your everyday life. Work, errands, meeting up with friends, and also the things that aren't always enjoyable, like going to the dentist, or the inevitable, like navigating the loss of a loved one. No matter who you are, all of these cycles of living happen in some shape or form each year. Now, let's hone in on the latter, medical treatments and loss. Imagine these everyday experiences destroying your life because one tiny little pill was given to ease your pain. That's the case for one out of every 10 people who are prescribed an opioid. I'm J.R. Jameson. Today on The Facing Project, I'll share the stories of three women whose lives have changed due to addiction. One from a sister who fights each day to win back her brother. Another from a pharmacist on the front lines of the opioid epidemic and one from a young mother who abused pain pills after the death of her child. Later in the show, I'll be joined by Kyle Brewer from NADAC, the Association for Addiction Professionals, to explore stopping the cycle of addiction. The stories in today's episode may be challenging for some. Listener discretion is advised. Denial is over. Robin's story as told to Missy Reed, performed by Melinda. My mom called my cell around four in the morning, two days before Christmas, and without any sense of urgency, despite calling so early, she simply said, what are you doing? I could tell from her voice that the question was rhetorical, and I knew the real purpose for calling was to see if I'd heard from my brother. Until a few weeks prior, the drill had always been the same. I'd answer this question with, ah, nothing much, what are you doing? Then she'd make a little small talk before easing into the real issue. Have you heard from your brother? And I'd typically say something like, "Uh, not lately. Then she'd say something like, well, he left here five hours ago to get cigarettes and he's not back. But this time, I abruptly said, I'm at the jail picking up your son. You might consider this insensitive, but it's really not. After four years of playing this game, I convinced my mother there should be no more euphemistic lead-ins to discuss a serious problem. My brother is an addict, and we were going to face it head-on. And if we face the truth, maybe he will too. In all honesty, I didn't see his problem coming. Growing up, we were buddies. We never fought, and we shared a sibling bond pretty typical of a lot of kids. Then I graduated from high school, got married, and started my life. And then he graduated and moved away to college. So we grew apart. I was okay in my new life. I just assumed he was, too. And really, he was, until the knee surgery. Here's the basic breakdown of events. He earned a degree and immediately got a good job in northern Kentucky. And after five years, he found a job here in our hometown, which is something we'd hoped for all along. He made a responsible plan surrounding the transition between jobs. He bought a fixed rubber here in Knox County and scheduled a much overdue knee surgery at the same time. According to plan, his first day at the new job would coincide with the end of his recovery period from surgery and the completion of enough home repairs to make the new place livable. He'd saved money for new appliances, furniture, and money to supplement his income until commissions started coming in reliably. He didn't borrow a dime other than for the mortgage. 
But when he came home and lived with mom and dad while recovering from the surgery, his high school friends, those who didn't seem to grow up, came around a lot. Did they come around because of his steady supply of pain pills? Probably had something to do with it, but I'll never know for sure. But I do know that my brother jumped back into the circle of friends pretty much overnight. Before we knew it, his debt was out of control. He blew through his savings, maxed out three credit cards, cashed in his 401k, and was soon behind on three mortgage payments. Then he lost his job. I ran off his friends. (laughs) Don't ask me how. You don't want to know. And I loaned him some money so he could keep his house, and things seemed to be back to normal. He got another job and eventually a girlfriend. We thought he was adjusting well, and my mom became excited about claiming this woman's daughter as her own granddaughter. But these were short-lived dreams. Just before we learned the bank would foreclose on his house, I discovered that his girlfriend had a drug-related rap sheet that required regular visits from social services. Lots of drama followed, and I eventually ran her off, too. (laughs) Again, you don't want to know. He moved back in with mom and dad, and I believed his life would turn around. I removed the problems, right? No more pillhead friends, no crackhead girlfriend. And he seemed to be doing fine. He's just easily influenced, I told myself. He'll be fine as long as I can control the people he associates with while he gets back on his feet. Then I went to work for a doctor who treated many addicts, and clarity set in. I recognized behaviors in my brother that I saw in patients. Even though he promised he was clean, and I'm talking about hand on the Bible promise that he was clean. One day I said, you won't have a problem with this drug test, will you? I'd gotten it from work. He shook his head and grinned, oh, absolutely not. Let's do it. So I administered the test. And he was positive for seven out of 11 substances. Why, I asked myself, would he agree to be tested if he knew the outcome? It's because he believes his own lies. I vowed from that time forward, I would do everything in my power to force him to face the truth. And I got my mom on board with this, at least to some extent. She's still anxious to believe him when he says he's fine. But for me, denial is over. And I constantly struggle with convincing my parents they should get their heads out of the sand. Which brings me back to Christmas. When he called and asked me to pick him up from jail, I didn't question whether or not I should do it. Many people's version of tough love would dictate that I turn my back, but I don't have it in me. My version is more about forcing him to face the truth. So I showed up. And I didn't blame an over-aggressive newbie police officer. I blamed my brother. His response? They can't prove anything. I nodded and said, Okay, but you'll take a drug test when we get home. He cried and said he wanted to quit. We're still hopeful that that day will come. Abuse is no secret. Susan's story as told to Sarah Wilder. Performed by Amanda Hummer. Pharmacy school prepares you for a lot of things. 
But one thing it doesn't prepare you for is watching a customer getting arrested in your business's parking lot. It all started with a doctor's office calling in a prescription for pain pills. That seems normal enough. It happens every day. But something about this call seemed a little suspicious. So just to be on the safe side, after we hung up, I called the doctor's office that was referenced, and sure enough, they hadn't called it in. Since it was a clear case of prescription forgery, we notified the police, and we had the woman's name because she had given it to us when she had pretended to be the doctor's office. But to prosecute for a prescription forgery, you have to catch a person in the act of trying to pick up the medication. So we flagged the prescription in case the lady ever did try to come pick up the order. It was about three weeks later when it happened. She entered the business, filled her prescription, and then left. Upon leaving, she was immediately arrested in our parking lot. Okay, maybe pharmacy school didn't prepare me for that, but in all honesty, I can't say it came as a surprise. In the past few years alone, there have been new systems introduced to help prevent this. One called MethCheck, which is a nationwide database to track pseudoephedrine sales, and another one called Kentucky All-Schedule Prescription Electronic Reporting, or CASPER for short, was one of the first programs of its kind in the nation to track controlled substance prescriptions within a state. But I guess one of the biggest differences in the industry I have seen would be the rising popularity of pain clinics. They are designed to help people who are addicted to opioids and then wean them off of these drugs. But honestly, I don't know how much help they are. The medications they prescribe at these clinics are expensive and aren't often covered by insurance. I see people, or families of people, come in all the time to get these medicines, and they have to pay out of pocket. That's a lot of money for some of them. Money that could be used elsewhere to help their families, I'm sure. But despite all this, people still try to figure out a way to get more pills. I can't tell you the number of times I've had people call trying to get their prescription refilled, and the list of excuses they use for losing pills is just as long. I dropped them in the lake. I dropped them in the toilet. My dog ate them. And on and on. And if they can't get the pills from us, they'll go to the streets to buy them. We know this because they then come to the pharmacy and ask us to identify what they've bought. I may have said the arrest was a surprise, but I deal with addiction almost daily as a function of my job. I deal with it when I have to check a prescription in Casper just to make sure it hasn't already been filled at another pharmacy. I deal with it when I have to count, then recount, and then have two other techs count the inventory of controlled substance meds after filling a prescription. And I definitely have to deal with it on the rare occasion I have to call the police because I suspect one of my customers is trying to commit prescription forgery. All of this because people have become addicted to pain pills. Prescription drug abuse is a problem, and it isn't going away. Love is greater than anger. Debbie's story as told to Melinda Hornback, performed by Tiffany Irk. No one wakes up and says, today I think I'll be an addict. My story of addiction and recovery is not the story of a junkie. It's the story of a mother with an addiction to pills. 
I never chose to hurt my children, but I did choose to use pills. Unfortunately, that choice devastated what was most important to me. It all started when my fourth child was born, a precious baby boy. He was one month and 27 days old when he died of SIDS. My husband found him. I started screaming. I wanted him to do something. CPR, call an ambulance, anything. When the EMT pronounced him dead, I think I died too. Not a part of me, but all of me. And you know the worst of it? People say the dumbest things when you are grieving, like he's in a better place and God must have needed another angel and be strong, you have your other kids who need you. None of that helped. Every part of me hurt. And then I discovered magic in a bag. Those pills took away my pain and I liked the feeling. I started using them off and on as the ache in my heart demanded. But I felt alone, so I went to a counselor who called my doctor and asked him to prescribe me something. Eventually, the doctor realized I had a problem, and he stopped feeding my addiction. I had to seek the pills off the street, lots of them, and I began doing whatever it took to get the relief I needed. Even though I was doing all of this, I thought I was still being a good mom. The front part of my brain was so numb, I couldn't see the truth. My children were falling apart, and that was my fault. My girls left me. They went to live with their dad. It broke my heart, but they were right. I tried to get into rehab, several of them, but I kept being put on waiting lists with no date of admission in sight. Then one year after my baby died, a neighbor called social services and my son, my last kid to be with me, was taken away. If I were thinking clearly, this would have rocked me into sobriety. In reality, I felt more powerless and more like a failure, which made me take more pills. A judge placed my case in drug court. I failed a few screens, and my levels were getting so high that the judge felt I wasn't going to make it unless I got help. But there were no beds open in rehab, so he locked me up to detox. I thought I was going to die in that cell. I was so sick. However, it was a blessing in disguise, and when I came home, I knew what I needed to do, and I was placed with a social worker to help me. She was hard on me, though. When I completed A, B, C to get my son back, she presented me with D, E, and F. It made me so mad. The expectations just kept changing. Today, I realize how fortunate I was to have her and the judge who cared enough to stay on me. I was also blessed that my son was placed in a foster home of a woman I knew. She was great with my son, and he was safe. Following my jail detox experience, I never used pills again. I've been clean for six years. I wish my transformation had magically healed my family, but it has been hard work to restore my relationship with my children. I hurt them, and I can't take that away. My son had to transition back into our house, but he's doing great now. 
I think my girls have forgiven me. Their dad and I co-parent, and that is working well. Sometimes I wish I could go back and have a normal life with my girls, but I've learned that different can be good, too. My children had to learn who I was clean and sober, and they had to learn to trust that I would stay that way. That takes time, but it is so worth the wait. I have an inner strength now that did not exist before, and it feels great. I want to welcome to the show Kyle Brewer from NADAC, the Association for Addiction Professionals. NADAC represents the interests of more than 100,000 addiction counselors, educators, and other addiction-focused healthcare professionals in the United States, Canada, and abroad. The organization works to create healthier individuals, families, and communities through prevention, intervention, quality treatment, and recovery support. Kyle, thank you for joining me. Absolutely, JR. I appreciate you having me. It's an honor and a privilege. You're now the peer specialist program manager for NADAC, and you were drawn to this work due to your own personal experiences. Tell me more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a person in long-term recovery uh, from opioid use disorder. Uh, that started for me uh, my freshman year of college. I got my wisdom teeth removed, was prescribed an opiate, oxycodone. I uh, started taking those as prescribed, and then after the refills ran out, I continued uh, taking them, buying them off the street, so on and so forth. And that continued on all throughout college, uh, limped through graduation, and then after graduation where I no longer had you know, the social life, the academics, the money for my scholarship to keep the lie kind of going, uh, life started spiraling pretty quickly. So I graduated in 2013, and from, from that time to 2017, I progressed from taking pills to snorting pills to shooting up pills to shooting up heroin, you know, in and out of jail, in and out of treatment a couple of different times, uh, really turned into a person I never imagined I would be doing things I never thought I would imagine uh, I would do, uh, really. And it was all driven by the the need to stay well, because at this point, mm-hmm. it was no longer about, uh, you know, having fun or partying. It was about if I didn't have uh, these opioids and I would be physically sick. And so I live with this timer in my head that told me, uh, you know, how long I had before the withdrawal symptoms will begin. And so that drove every decision that I'd make on a day-to-day basis. Um, then in July, on July 10th of 2017, I hit what, what's called, you know, rock bottom uh, for the for the last time that started me on this current chapter of my recovery journey. And I reached out to a faith-based treatment program. I gave my life to God and I surrendered to recovery. And from that day forward, I completed that program and have been living a life of recovery, uh, thankfully one day at a time and learned about uh, peer support and uh, how that gives me the opportunity to take my you know, my worst experiences in life and use that in a positive way to help other people who may be uh, going through those same challenges. And got involved with that, been working in that field for about four years now, and uh, got connected and working with NADAC last January 21. And, uh, you know, that's kind of a a real short summary of a a very long story. But at the end of the day, I'm just, I'm grateful to be alive and uh, appreciative of all the people that have uh, helped me get to where I'm at today. Well, congratulations. I mean, for making it out and now helping others, that's an amazing feat. And honestly, it's hopeful. Your story and the ones we shared in this episode today are only a few of a thousand of stories from across the country in what is now known as an epidemic. And according to the CDC, this opioid epidemic has quadrupled in the United States in the last two decades and has come in three waves. 
starting with prescription drug abuse in the 90s, leading to now synthetic opioids. How have these ways impacted the work you do with counselors and educators? So the opioid epidemic is is has been a complete crisis in our country. It's been going on for quite some time, and that affects families, communities, loved ones from all around. And when it affects those people, then it affects the, the uh, professionals that work with that population of people. So uh, as far as NADAC, it's affected the education that we focused on. We've done a lot of specific trainings and educations and webinars surrounding the opioid uh, epidemic, stuff like that's focusing on the medications that are being used to, to support people in recovery, like Suboxone, buprenorphine, Vivitrol, those types of medications, and just making sure that everybody has the knowledge and education and training that they need uh, to be uh, familiar with the most latest trends and the most latest treatment uh, modalities and approaches. Um, so that's one way that that it's affected us. Um, but again, it, it's affecting everyone. So if you're if you're a counselor or you're a pastor or you're a, you know a teacher, it, it doesn't matter that people have been affected by this personally and professionally. And as a result of that, uh, at NADAC, it affects you know every every piece of the work that we do from advocacy to education and training. Mm-hmm. And that training and counseling is really important. And in recent years, there has been a shift in general attitudes from incarceration to rehabilitation, but comprehensive reform has yet to happen. What does this look like at a federal and state level? And are there complications to this type of reform? Well, I'll start with the complications. Uh, so, of course, there's going to be complications uh, with any change. You know, I, I know me personally, I'm naturally initially resistant to change. And so we've been doing things when it comes to this a certain way for quite some time. And there's financial uh, gains and different entities that, you know, make a lot of money off these types of things. And so there will be challenges and complexities to making a shift in perception and a shift of approaches and how we deal with these types of issues. Um, But it's going to start at the federal or state level with conversations. You know, we have to have real conversations with people that are that is directly affecting and also our legislators, the people in the Congress and in Senate and uh, advocating for for different policies and procedures at that level, federal level, that make it even possible for these things to happen at a at a state level. And so it all it all begins with relationships. um, And that's one of the things that that we really focus on at NADAC is advocating uh, and getting to know the, our, our, our policymakers, our decision makers, our legislators, and building those relationships to, uh, you know, to put a face with the things that are going on that sometimes when, when we're having these conversations, if it's not directly affected our lives, it's kind of a distant thing and we don't really understand it. And so definitely believe that putting people in recovery, uh, like the stories that you've shared, that having them in the conversation, uh, sharing what's impacted them, what worked, what didn't work, uh, I believe that's a critical part uh, to to trying to change this perception and really break stigma. Because uh, for a lot of times, you know, drug use, not just opioid use disorder, but, you know, back in the, with the crack epidemic and that's still going on and methamphetamine use, there's it's really uh, was stigmatized and drug use and mental health challenges were looked at as like a moral failing or moral challenge or issue. And that we should people deserve to be incarcerated when they make those types of decisions. Well, that's not the case. This is a brain disorder. This is a disease and we need to treat it as such. And so instead of a moral problem, it's a health problem. And we need to be able to recognize that when someone is uh, in these situations, that incarceration may not be the best path for every single person that falls into a certain category. Uh, and I believe we really get to that when, we, when we're having those one-on-one conversations and, and putting faces with all these issues. Mm-hmm. And you're in Arkansas, and I'm in Indiana. And 
while the opioid epidemic reaches all parts of the U.S., rural communities have been impacted the most. And the USDA indicates that opioid overdose rates have quadrupled among those between the ages of 18 and 25 during the past 15 years. What efforts are happening to help rural communities combat the crisis? Yeah, uh, I mean, that really good point here in Arkansas. This is something that I'm really familiar with and uh, the communities here because we have a lot of rural parts. So I'm located in Pulaski County where Little Rock, the capital is. And here there's, you know, several resources, several options for recovery and treatment. Uh, but when you get to the more rural parts, access to care, transportation, uh, insurance, pro- like all of these barriers make it, make it, can make it really difficult uh, to provide services and, and someone to get the help that, they, that they're seeking. Um, so one thing that's being done at a state level, I know here in Arkansas and really across the country is uh, something that's called peer recovery specialist. And so what a peer recovery specialist is, is someone that has lived experience, they're in recovery themselves, and uh, they go through training, they get a certification, and they're able to go out into these communities and meet people right where they're at and get them connected because they're resource brokers to the appropriate resources. Um, I know HRSA has put out a lot of different funding to address the rural areas uh, uh, of the country and to you know pilot programs such as like wellness vans that that go out into these communities and uh, offer you know harm reduction uh, opportunities and uh, medication assisted treatment and recovery and and you know really it's it's taking it to the community instead of you know like we traditionally do waiting on someone to come in because in these rural areas uh, that's just not uh, as easy uh, as it may be in a more populated uh, city mm-hmm. if someone's listening today and they or a loved one are battling addiction, what would you say to them? What I would say is um, that you're not alone, first and foremost. I know that that situation of personal experience, uh, it can feel really lonely. There can be a lot of shame attached to it. And I just want you to know that you're not alone. But in addition to that, there are so many people across the country that are living lives of recovery, including myself, and that we're here to walk that journey with you. And so wherever you're located, I would just encourage you to step past that fear and shame and reach out and ask for help. And I know that may be challenging. I know it's easier said than done, but I tell you, you can't move past the problem until you acknowledge it. And I want you to know that you will be met with compassion, understanding, and love uh, through this process. And so I know it's hard at the beginning. There'll be hard days throughout the entire process, but both for the person that's having the challenges and for the family members, uh, there is hope, there is resources, and that recovery is certainly possible. Hmm. Kyle Brewer, Peer Specialist Program Manager for NADAC, the Association for Addiction Professionals. Thank you so much for sharing your own personal journey with our listeners and for joining me. Yeah, thank you, JR. I appreciate your time. If you or someone you know is suffering from addiction, it's never too late to reach out for help. Resources, treatment, and support available by state and region can be found at addictionresource.com. To learn more about the work of NADAC, they can be found online at naadac.org slash knowledge dash center. Stories from today's episode came from rural Kentucky through facing addiction in Knox County. It's our move. We want to thank Union College for organizing this facing project and give an extra shout out to President Marsha Hawkins and Monica Shannon Klaus for coordinating all of the moving pieces. Robin's story was written in collaboration with Missy Reed and was performed by Melinda. Susan's story was written in collaboration with Sarah Wilder and was performed by Amanda Hummer. Debbie's story was written in collaboration with Melinda Hornback 
and was performed by Tiffany Irk. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash The Facing Project. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Or just ask your smart speaker to play The Facing Project on NPR. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com. To continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in beautiful and wonderful Muncie, Indiana, and is produced by the amazing producer and sound engineer extraordinaire, Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson. And until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Mm